Hey, this is Larry Wilmore, and welcome to Black on the Air. I am Black on the Air, and I'm Black on the Air. <laughs> you can figure out that double entendre. It always amuses me every week. We have a really, really fun show for you today. Um, I interview Kumail Nanjiani about his new movie, The Big Sick. He's a very funny comedian. You may have seen him in Silicon Valley. And uh, this movie puts him in a whole new light and I think introduces him to a whole new audience. And we really had a lot of fun talking about the making of that movie. And uh, I kind of got my movie nerd geek stuff out. So so I think you're really going to enjoy that. Oh, and I also want to mention... Uh, Next week, there will not be a podcast, but we'll be back on July 6th uh, with an all-new Black on the Air. So there won't be one next week, but there will be one on July 6th. So look for that. Anyhow, there's so many things going on right now, you guys. The news happens so fast. But I wanted to start off with something that, <laughs> that involved me, unfortunately. And it's the whole incident with the American Otto Warmbier, who was in North Korea, he was uh, arrested there over a year ago for allegedly stealing the propaganda poster. He was with the tour group or something. And it's, it's come out that I mean, it seems he may have been tortured or, or something. We're not sure exactly what happened. They're still trying to figure that out. But it's definitely clear that he wasn't given the help that he should have gotten. And uh, he finally came home and he was in a coma and he passed away. It's a very tragic story and, and a horrible thing. And we did a piece on The Nightly Show about a year ago when he was first captured. And our piece was really kind of a cautionary tale, just kind of uh, taking the point of view about knowing that you're in an authoritarian regime and not doing a college prank type of thing. It was that type of thing on a comedy show. But I'm not here to talk about that piece or to defend it and everything. There's been a lot of uh, people have been playing that piece on the air and have been saying, Larry, how dare you? You're disgusting and all that. And, you know, in the light of um, the kid passing away and all that. In fact, even Tucker Carlson, I think, uh, said, <laughs> well, he had it on his show. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to say and just say very clearly and directly that, uh, especially in light of these events, I want to express my sincere condolences to the Warm Beer family. They lost a kid. I would never hold the importance of the meaning of a satirical comedy show against the life of a kid. I mean, it's terrible. Parents losing a kid is, is one of the worst things. And I really feel for these, um, for the parents of, of this kid. It's really sad what happened and it is tragic. And I want you to know that even, and as a parent myself, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you is losing a child uh, for parents. There really is nothing worse. My sister went through losing her child who was in his early twenties. You just don't get over that type of thing. My heart goes out to them. Also, as an American, I also share the moral outrage at an American being treated like this in what I consider a hostile authoritarian regime led by someone who is one of the epitomes of evil in today's world. Um, that is just a horrible thing, you know. And... Um, <sighs> Everyone that is outraged about this, I, I share that outrage with you. It is unfortunate that, you know, I'm put into this position where somehow I'm this evil person and I've been called disgusting and all that, which is fine. I understand that, you know, when I do comedy, you know, I go after things, issues that are sometimes can be very divisive. I get called names all the time. I really don't 
I really accept that. You know, it's part of the big boy pants that you have to have. But I want to get back to the point of I want to focus on this family that has lost a child. And I think that is the most important thing here. And it is the thing to remember. And I, and then also I do want to say that I would never try to defend the doing of this comedy show against the loss of your child. And I extremely to, to Fred and Cindy Warmbier, I humbly apologize that uh, the words in those shows may have diminished uh, the value in people's eyes of what your son uh, certainly meant to you. So please take that from, from where it is and know that uh, at the end of the day, I could care less about a stupid comedy show. And I, I do believe that people's lives are more important. Also, I do want to say that, you know, I do think North Korea is this interesting problem right now. I, I think people, there is a problem of these groups going to North Korea and setting up this place as this, this, uh, this false sense of, of, of tourism and security that you can go and you can take pictures and you can act freely. You can't, this is a dangerous place. And I think a lot of these, it's coming out now. And I think uh, Warmbier's dad talked about these uh, tour groups that are taking advantage of people that by taking them on these tours. But um, I think the whole world should unite and just stop going to North Korea. By the way, as you know, guys, I go against Trump and I talk about him and all this stuff. And uh, if he has a, a North Korean isolationist policy of isolating North Korea. I will fully support that. Oh my God. Larry said he would support something Trump would do. I'm telling you, uh, this is one place I have uh, no problem with being on that side. So I think it's something we can all unite um, around is isolating the horribleness that is North Korea. Okay. All right. So there's a lot of sad news this week and I apologize for that, but I feel like I should weigh in on some of this. And uh, the first thing is this Cosby trial. That's right. I have not forgotten about you. And I haven't had a chance to weigh in on this. And um, I was thinking about this thing. And guys, there's nothing funny about this, by the way. So I know I'm supposed to be a comedian and it's hard for me to even lighten this up for us. And I know in these days, we desperately want things to lighten us. But um, I was talking to my daughter about this and it was really interesting. And she came up with this word problematic to describe some of these things. And I found it very interesting. I talk to my kids about a lot of these issues. It's, it's really interesting. And problematic is one of the ways to describe something like what's happening at something like the Cosby trial, because these abuse is a very problematic issue because people are irreversibly changed in this process. And when Many women are afraid to even report these things and to go to trial, you know, and the behavior around it is not behavior that can be explained with logic, you know, but that's how it's put on display on trial. You know, there are many questions that are presented to the women that um, is trying to explain away the illogic, let's say, of their actions after the abuse happened. You know, why did you call them so much? Why did you act like that? You know, and the fact of the matter is, when you've been sexually abused or assaulted, there is no logic to your actions at this point because you have been victimized. It can't be explained with logic. And that is a very problematic issue if you were in a court of law. I want to know why there aren't more questions directed at why did you give her pills? Why did you drug someone? Why did you think that was a good thing? To me, that should be the important questions. 
not about her behavior of why did you call him so much. It's always putting so much emphasis on the victim in these cases. You know, I just think that's what makes these issues problematic for juries, problematic for people to sort out the issues because they are he said, she said, and that sort of thing. One of the things that comes out of it is that because these issues are very problematic and because they're hard to convict, it prevents women from speaking out against it and from uh, even wanting to take these things to trial um, because of these sort of outcomes. But let me just say this. I know that that's difficult and everything. I want to send a message to the men out there who I believe should make an effort to become bigger allies for women in this case. I think if more men become allies for this and, you know, stand up with a voice on this issue as much as possible, I think it can help people who have been victimized and abused to come out as problematic as these things can be. So anyhow, that's my take on that. (laughs) Told you this is a heavy day, guys. Okay, speaking of problematic, another horrible thing came out, and that's the Philando Castile videotape. Philando Castile, as you guys remember, was the gentleman who was shot by the officer. I can't remember the uh, city offhand. It may have been Minneapolis or Minnesota somewhere. I'm not sure. He was in the car with his wife or girlfriend, I'm not sure, and I think their child. And the officer came over, and he asked for his license registration. He had a busted taillight. And then the gentleman says, "Um, look, I just want to tell you that I have a firearm and I have a permit. And he says, okay, don't take it out. And he had asked for his license and, you know, this thing happened so fast and they released the video of it where the shooting started as they're discussing, like, what are you doing and what are you taking out? It was breathtakingly tragic how this, how fast this happened and so sad. And this issue about police brutality and all this stuff also is a very problematic issue because many people have attributed the qualities of the of the victim in a lot of these cases. Well, they may have been a criminal. Well, they were no angel. Well, they were fleeing from the police. Well, all these things. And, and that whole problematic area has been brought up. This one is completely non-problematic, I believe, in how he handled this. He It appears he was so forthcoming with giving the information that he had a gun. The fact that he would start shooting just doesn't seem logical to me, you know? And I think what is very painful for the family in this is that it looked like he was doing every possible thing a person is supposed to do in that case. And yet this tragedy still happened. So my heart also goes out to that family and the people who are grieving there and that child in the backseat who had to witness that horrible thing. All right, let's move on. This stuff is making me too sad. Um, The last thing is our, Uh, As you know, I have made fun of the president calling him the orange Julius Caesar. (laughs) It's kind of been my my term for him. And now, of course, the public theater puts on a production of Julius Caesar, you know, with the likeness of Trump or whatever, a guy in a business suit with an overly long tie, you know, which I still don't understand why that tie is so long. I'm sure there's some Freudian phallus connection there. (laughs) That is, is, I'm sure, is apparent. But. This got a lot of outrage, especially by Trump supporters of people. And there was the question, especially in the light of what happened with Kathy Griffin and her um, holding up uh, that severed head thing, which I think everybody agreed was in poor taste and was not the right thing to do. This is a little different because now we're talking about 
an actual work of art, you know, Shakespeare. Everybody's familiar with the Julius Caesar story, you know, and uh, everybody knows what happens in it. And it's almost also kind of a cautionary tale about politics and out of control, uh, despotism and that sort of thing, the hunger for power and so many issues in in Julius Caesar. It's actually one of my favorite plays. I quote it all the time. Um, but, um, you know, uh, there's a, been a lot of criticism of this is going too far. And, you know, what if they did this with Obama? I'm sure the left would be upset. Well, it turns out this actually was done with the likeness of Obama by the Guthrie Theater years ago. And I don't even remember it, to be honest with you. And in all intellectual honesty, they're right. I would have been upset if I found out. Come on. You guys know me. The first black president and they're doing a play about him being Julius Caesar being assassinated. Yes. In this case, I'll admit it. I would have been upset and I would have been outraged and I would have made my comments about it. But the real question is, how far can art go? And it is a good question. And this is another problematic area. You know, it actually is. You know, I'm a supporter of the public theater. I think it's a great place. They put on a lot of great work. I am a firm supporter of the arts. I believe that criticism through art is important. And I wanted to make a distinction um, before I finish there, because a lot of people conflate the ideas of criticism and patriotism. And I wanted to discuss this real quick. And a lot of people conflate these, like people that defend their criticism say, well, this is, this is patriotism. A lot of people who attack it say that people are being unpatriotic while they're being critical. Okay, here's my take on it. I believe criticism is criticism, and I believe patriotism is patriotism. That's why they're different words. That's why we have words so things can be different. <laughs> That's my take on it. You can be critical of this country, and it has nothing to do with patriotism. At the same time, you can be patriotic about your country, and it has nothing to do with criticism. Um, in fact, I, I, don't, I don't have to defend my criticism as being a form of patriotism. It can just be criticism. And I can have patriotism in another box. I kind of view it in, in sports almost. Like to me, cheerleaders are what I consider patriotism. You know, go team. Yeah, this team is awesome. This team is great. Whereas the sports journalist like Bill Simmons, let's say, just to pick one off the top of my head, that's criticism. Their job is to say the Lakers suck. Yes, Bill, that's exactly what you say all the time, you know, or that the Knicks suck, you know, and to point out you know, have a critical analysis of it. Their job is not to cheer on the team. That's the cheerleader's job. Those are two different areas. I myself am a very patriotic person. I've had a flag that I put out in front of my house ever since I was able to buy a house. And I'll never forget when my, I've always been very patriotic growing up, but it was really stirred in the early 90s, right before the first Gulf War. I had the opportunity to perform for troops um, in Asia and in Germany. And a lot of these kids were about to go off to that first war in Iraq. And we didn't know what was going to happen back then at the time. It turned out to be very short. But I was looking at these kids, really young kids, and they were about to go to war. And we were doing this comedy show making them laugh. And it just dawned on me that, oh, my God, they're about to do this thing, and they don't know what's going to happen. And as I'm thinking this, the, the um, I think it's Lee Greenwood, whatever his song is, it's proud to be an American because at least I know I'm free. You know, that's a, and tears just start streaming down my eyes. And I remember thinking, yes, you're right, Lee. I am proud to be an American. <laughs> and it just really was just this sense that stirred at me. It wasn't a new sense. You know, I always felt that way. Even with America's blemishes, I've always been proud to be an American. 
But I have always separated my love for this country, which is deep and enduring and cannot be broken, with my criticism for its flaws, which I am keenly aware of and I point out as a service of criticism, but not at the expense of patriotism, nor in the service of it. So anyhow, that's my opinion on that. Um, like I said, <laughs> we have a fun interview coming up. So I apologize for the somber tone here, but uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. But first, a quick word. All right, welcome back. I'm here with a very funny man. I'm so happy that he's here. Um, you know him from Silicon Valley, of course, from all the other various uh, comedy things that he's done. But he's about to blow up big time, you guys. <laughs> big time, y'all, in a very funny movie that I was very fortunate to see a few months ago called The Big Sick, Kumail Nanjiani. Hey, thank you for having me. And How's it going, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. I appreciate you coming by. This is kind of the end of the day here today, and I know you've been doing press all day, so I really appreciate it. Um, oh, yeah, of course. Now I was excited to talk to you because I remember yeah. you tweeted about you'd seen the movie, and uh, I got very excited. Well, here's the thing. I love, here's the thing. I love good films, and I love good movies. I make a distinction. Like a film, I feel like, oh, this is a film, you know, let me sit back. And then a movie is like, yeah, let me eat my popcorn, you know. But sometimes you get to have both of those meals <laughs> in one thing. And The Big Sick was a great film that was a fucking awesome movie at the same time. Oh, my God, that's so yeah. nice. Well, what I mean by that, it just, it elevates that type of comedy for me, you know, that rom-com, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, girl yeah. girl's almost lost to the world in this case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But there was such a heart about it that was so interesting to me. And there was a lot of genre disruptors, I guess maybe I could say, you know, um, just even you as a leading man, you know, I feel as a genre disruptor in such a fantastic way. And I felt the audience was on your side. I, like to me, part of that feeling, it's an unconscious thing. When the audience senses there's a new underdog here that is leading the show now, that is driving the train, they love that type of thing. Now you were there. Did you? Did you? Do you have that feeling sometimes, or are you just numb to that type of thing? No, know? I'm not numb to it. <clears throat> uh -huh. I think. I think. I think you're right that a lot of audiences like that. But I'm also. Yeah. I've been afraid that, especially uh -huh. since the movie's coming out when it's coming out, that there's uh, going to be people who are upset about it. Too. What? Why do you think they'll be upset? Well, I just see, you know, I see like on my Twitter and stuff because uh -huh. now they're promoting the movie. And when you're like, you know, when you do stand up, your audience is kind of curated. Right. So the people who like you are the ones who would know That's you. Right. Really. That's who's showing up. Right. Yeah. But but when you have like a movie coming out, they're kind of promoting it with like a, you know, like, <laughs> like a cannon. It's just right, spraying right. it everywhere. Yes. Right. And so you catch a lot of people who are who are like. Oh God, this movie's liberal propaganda or whatever. Which I'm right. like, that's so crazy to me that you think that because it really has, sure. it really has no agenda. It's just a love story. But watching it at Sundance was very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always use the phrase uh, when I was on the Daily Show. People say, "Do you get recognized?" I said, "Look, it's cable fame. People that recognize me like me. Once you get more famous, I call it. I'm not. I wasn't famous enough to suck yet." 
<laughs> you know, right. once you get famous enough to suck, then it becomes an issue of people recognizing you. That's you know? exactly yeah. what it's like with Silicon Valley. Like right. the people who know it are the people who would who like the show. Yes, which has a rabbit following. Yeah, yeah it really does. Yeah. It really does. But Sundance was exciting because obviously they're all movie fans. Sure. Um, and we were talking about this earlier. I feel like at Sundance. You have such a pure experience because nobody knows what the movie is. Yes. They just, they just start watching. And I think they knew that there was a brown guy in the lead, yeah. but they didn't know what kind of character it was. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it is it is sort of a... I am sort of a romantic comedy You guy. absolutely... Are, oh, you mean you yourself are no, romantic No, I mean in the, in, the, in the movie. In the movie, yeah. Th- that's sort of the... the I'm playing like a like a rom-com guy, which I don't... Right. I don't think we'd seen before, but that wasn't even in my mind until yeah. until people had watched the movie, and that was one of the things that yes. they were excited about. I hadn't, absolutely, I hadn't thought of that. Well, um, well, the reason why a lot of it, I believe, is unconscious, you know, because m- movies don't exist in a vacuum. You know, they exist after all these years and years of films have already been shown, and they also exist alongside all the other movies that are out at that time, you know? And, um, like, when I think of blacks in movies, you know, for years we were relegated to the servant, you know? You could never have a romantic life or nobody cared about that. You were there for jokes or whatever. So when you first saw Sidney Poitier saying, they call me Mr. Tibbs, you know? Yeah. Fuck you, white man, or that type of thing. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, they got to talk back, you know? Yeah. It's, it's there's a liberation that happens in the audience. And I think a lot of it is unco- is unconscious, you know. And uh, But anyhow, I think a lot of that goes when you see, like, okay, here's a person that normally would be the sidekick. Yeah. Or, you know, you get relegated to playing certain types of roles. But we're not supposed to invest in you emotionally. Right. You know, and I think that's liberating. And I think what you're saying is right, is that when someone's watching a movie, they're interacting with it while they're interacting with every other movie. The history of film. Yes. So they they sort of have a sense of like, generally rhythm of movies. This is the kind of guy that's a good guy. This is the kind of guy that's a bad guy, that kind of stuff. And so I think just because of the story, because whoever's, because I'm the main guy, it upends some expectations can we tell people briefly what it's about because it's based on your real life yeah it's mm-hmm. uh it's sort of based on the true first year of my relationship with mm-hmm. my now wife back when she was my girlfriend mm-hmm. and what happened was when we were first dating my parents wanted me to have an arranged marriage you know my parents mm-hmm. are very religious shiite muslims and that's what they wanted me to do from pakistan they're from pakistan yes mm-hmm. Uh, they live the, now. They live in Jersey, mm-hmm. and um, that sounds normal. Yeah, <laughs> well, Pakistan to Jersey, baby steps. You know, <laughs> <laughs> let's go to America. Where should we? Where should we land? Yeah, we Plymouth be, Rock? No, Jersey. What's yeah, wrong with you? We'll go to the Pakistan of America. <laughs> um, so they uh, they wanted me to have an arranged marriage. I was secretly dating. They this were serious girl. about this. Yeah, yeah, very serious. I okay. mean, my parents had an arranged marriage. Everyone in my family, like most of my cousins have arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion outside of your personal experience about arranged marriages? Because I've heard pros and cons on it. You know, like well, like love marriages aren't, I mean, there's a high divorce rate from love marriages. That's you know? right. But this, mm-hmm. it's also high divorce rate because the expectations are different. And okay, lo- okay. Tell me what you mean by that. What do you mean by the expectation? I think in a love marriage, which is sort of a Western marriage, yes. and in Pakistan, mm-hmm. there's a line in the movie, but yeah. love marriages are considered, it's the 
derogatory term. It's a bad thing. You don't want okay. a love marriage. They're like, oh, he had a love marriage. Really? Wow. And I think the expectations oh, are different. They, they loved each other. Oh, oh. gross. <laughs> it wasn't arranged at all. Yeah, not even uh, the love was arranged. <laughs> I will say the expectations are different because in a okay. love marriage, it comes from romance. It comes from just two people coming together. Right. So... The pact is only between those two people, and it's based in okay. romance. So when sort of the romance goes away, mm-hmm. the very reason that those two people got together is kind of gone. Okay. So they're the only ones who are choosing whether to be together or not. And arranged marriage is sort mm-hmm. of a pact between two families, and it's two got families it. coming together. Right. So the There's I, a lot more on the line with an arranged marriage. Yeah, there's a lot more voices that are a yeah. lot more people sort of involved in that transaction. And I don't mean arranged marriage is a transaction and love sure. marriage isn't. I, I'm, think, I'm, I'm saying yeah, they're both, both transactions. They're both yeah. transactions, right. <laughs> um, so I think the expectations are different. I think a lot of people get into, when you do an arranged marriage, it's not like I fully love this person and I want to spend my life with them. Mm-hmm. I think it's these two families have decided to sort of make this bond. Mm-hmm. And I think, like for my parents, for instance, my parents were arranged married, but they genuinely love each other. They mm-hmm. have romantic love between them, but that slowly has to develop. So what happens is the commitment is made first, right. and then love is secondary to that commitment. It, it's a given that... Whether I love you or not is secondary to the fact that we are committed in marriage. I think so. And, and I th- when, I'm, when I mean love, I talk about when you say romantic love is what right. we're talking about. Right. Not, not the committed love when you're just devoted to someone. Right. And right. so I think if you never get to the point where you get romantic love or if the romantic love goes away, it's not as devastating as in a love marriage because it wasn't really part of the equation in the right. beginning. Right. Those weren't your expectations. Right. right. And mm-hmm. also part of it is that there's a lot of there's a lot more of a societal stigma against divorce uh in places where they've arranged marriage than here. Now the divorce rates in Pakistan are on the rise, but still much lower than here. I mean, growing up... Is that a Western influence, you think? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, growing up, we never... I didn't know anybody who'd gotten divorced. Like, mm-hmm. truly, truly no one. Mm-hmm. And now, I know a cousin or two who've gotten divorced. No aunts or uncles have ever gotten divorced, like, at all. Mm-hmm. I'm just realizing that that's <laughs> it's crazy. When you start realizing things about your family, it could be a little scary. Yeah, well... Is there any stigma attached to it? To d- divorce? No, I mean, in, like, in your family, has there been stigma attached to, to that now still? To divorce? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really? yeah, yeah. Definitely. First of all, I think there should be more of a stigma here, too. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I true, feel yeah. like everybody's getting divorced sure. here. I think people get married too early. I think, I think, mm-hmm. I don't know why people choose to do it unless you really want to spend the rest of your life with this person. Well, I think the trend is people are getting married later, I think, though. Oh. And people are staying single more, too. There's a lot more people. Plus, there's a lot more people that want to stay 15 years old for until they're like 65. More and more here, <laughs> yes, huh? It's more, true. More and more. I yeah. mean, yeah, I, I think people stay stay younger longer. Yeah. They stay mature longer. Um, and, and, and that's also a difference there. I think you're, by the time you're in your early 20s, you're sort of expected to have mm-hmm. your shit figured out. Yeah, it's very old school in that in that way, what we would call old school. Yes, way. it's it's right. true. It's true. Um, so yeah, showing the movie at Sundance was interesting because mm-hmm. it was um, sort of, uh, and I'm a big fan of rom-coms. Like I know mm-hmm. that language and the tropes really well. Yes, and you what, know all the rules, right? I know all the rules. So what uh-huh. you could do is if you know the rules, you could sort of set people on a path of expectation. Right. 
and then sort of change it and yeah. keep the audience sort of off balance. Yeah, Jordan Peele was talking about that when he made Get Out. Right. He's such a huge fan of horror films. And, I mean, he's kind of creating a new genre, the the racial horror film. Yeah, film or the, the civic-minded horror film. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think you need to be completely familiar because audiences are smart. They usually know your genre even better than you do. And, That's right. And they're sticklers about the rules. And if you're going to change them, you better have a really good reason to change right. them. And right. And I think, you know, what Jordan, and I love Get Out, where Jordan is going back to, initially when, I'm a big horror movie fan as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like in the 60s and 70s, the horror movies that were coming out did sort of have like sort of a, a some sort of social agenda, you know, mm-hmm. like a... Night of the Living Dead. A lot of them were talking about consumerism. And, right. And, and, and that was actually the 50s, Night of the Living Dead. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they sort of became, in the 80s with the slashers, they became very kind of puritanical. It was a lot mm-hmm. of like, if you have sex, you get killed. You drink <laughs> right. and do drugs, you get killed. That's true. So yeah, for I didn't a very, think about that. So for a very wow. violent genre, it was actually very, wow. very chaste. It was weird. It kind of did both things. It was... Uh, it was on the on the fringes at the extremes of the society in both ways because that that kind of explicit horror and sex is on the opposite extreme. That's right. So it kind of got to have its cake and eat it too, which is like it shows you all the awful stuff, but tells you that it's awful and that yes. you're you shouldn't be enjoying it. Mm-hmm. So I think that really warped horror movies. And then in the '90s and 2000s, horror movies generally became pretty brainless. They became like yeah. really pretty people. Like I thought Scream was great, but after Scream, all those movies kind are, of became parodies, right? Yeah, they parodies all became themselves. like really generic. And so, so Jordan is very smart. He's using it to sort of go back mm-hmm. to originally what a lot of back horror to its was. Roots. Yeah, and what what like something like Stephen King, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's rarely about the horror. It's more about the group dynamics and stuff in a right. Stephen King movie. So for our movie. Knowing the the rom com tropes, mm-hmm. we were able to sort of use them to keep people off balance and keep them guessing as to what was going to happen. Right. So, what what was one of the biggest ways that you wanted to uh, make the genre different or or manipulate the genre? Um, like for instance, uh, most rom coms, mm-hmm. which is a genre that I do love. Yep. Most of them end when the couple gets together. Yes. And that's the end of the movie. Right. With us, we wanted to show, I think the interesting stuff happens after that, like the negotiation of a relationship. Sure. That like two people getting to know each other, like I'm going to give you a piece of this. I'm going to I'm going to open myself up to you this much. Right. Are you going to open yourself up this much? It's not fully math, but I think that's the understanding. Yeah. So in the first act of the movie, the first act of the movie is really kind of its own full rom-com. It's mm-hmm. got three acts. The first act is a uh, couple meets, falls in love, right. breaks up. It has that classic construction. Yes. Right. And that's just the first 35 minutes of the movie. And what we do, what, what we wanted to show in that was actually what it's like to get to know someone. Mm-hmm. So we have the Emily character sort of revealing herself. And then Kumail kind of not reciprocating. Yes. And we're seeing that sort of happen over and over until, you know, it doesn't, it can't take and it breaks. Right. So in a, I, I, and we put the breakup scene in the trailer because we wanted to sort of show people like this is not a traditional movie. And the breakup is kind of harsh. It's like a pretty intense. It is. It's an interesting breakup scene, too, because there's nobody to really root for. Right. You know, and that's what makes it different than your typical breakup scene where somebody's clearly the asshole 
You know, right. you're you're more of the asshole probably in this, yes, you know. Certainly. Without giving away too much, but you have a very good reason to be an asshole and it's it's very provocative. That's exactly yes. right. We we wanted both <clears throat> we wanted it to seem like nobody's really an asshole. I'm clearly a little bit more yes, of an asshole. Yes, you're more of an asshole. And now, the guy should be more of an asshole. The guy should be, yeah. especially in this movie, <laughs> right. I need to be the asshole. She yes. can't be the asshole, and then she goes into a coma. We, <laughs> that's, we're just, movie over, finally. <laughs> oh, my God. I have my exit. The bad guy <laughs> the is asshole defeated. is asleep is the name of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, so, and, so, and, the, and then the fight that we have in there mm-hmm. is two people. It's kind of vicious. Um because when you when you say vicious, what do you mean by that? Well, why that word? I mean, for instance, like I love my wife and we've been together for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that a couple fights is even more intimate and specific than the way they, they have sex. Very interesting. So like so like when, when my wife and I fight, first mm-hmm. of all, we fight about the same things that we've been fighting about since we met. Now, what's interesting... It's so, I'm so happy that you said that. Not that this is a relationship podcast, <laughs> but here is that is such a, a nice little gem that you have there. You don't make fight a conflict in your marriage, it's almost like a form of communication where it's a given that because you love each other, you are destined to fight about things. Because, well, first of all, you're different people, but I think a lot of people get hung up with, with fighting because they think that's an indicator that we don't love each other, that type of thing. But you have a, a nurturing view of it, it seems like, or at least a, a, a view that that's how your relationship evolves, maybe. That's exactly yes, right. right. That's exactly right. I feel like one of the things that we're most proud of in our relationship mm-hmm. is that we know how to fight well. Right. Uh, and by that, I mean, we'll fight until we don't fight anymore. Right. And hopefully, this was my big, like... Um, epiphany about relationships and it sounds so obvious now was the relationship keeps evolving and changing nobody's relationship is done whether you like it or not whether you like it or not and i think being aware of it because you're changing as people so obviously your relationship has to change Mm -hmm. and your relationship is sort of a thing that's it's part of you but it's also separate from you and it needs Mm -hmm. to be taken care of it's its own animal it's its own plant that needs to be watered and that's right yes that's right. So, um, or or argued with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, plant! Why aren't you going? <laughs> so, so in the movie with that fight. Well, but that said, sometimes I'll have a fight with my wife. Mm-hmm. You know where, and we really love each other, uh, truly, truly. But I know where her buttons are. Yes. I know what I. I know what I can do. That's the asshole part. Yeah. I know right. that if I smile and say this, mm-hmm. it is going to, she is going to fucking hate it so right. much. And yes. she knows my move, my moves too. Yes. And so in that fight, we sort of used some of that. We used the things where people will say something, not because they mean it, but because mm-hmm. they want to, just because they know that this is going to really, absolutely, this is going to sting. And there was a line in the fight that we don't even that we took out at the movie where we're arguing and I'm like, we've only been dating five months. Don't you think you're overreacting? Yeah. Because that's such a shitty thing to say to a woman. And also only five months is like you're downplaying the whole relationship. Sure. You're, you're minimizing this like wonderful experience we've had together up to this point. So and you're we, invalidating all of the emotions that have been expressed in the moment too. I know. Chief it, of which is anger. It's so shitty. <laughs> yes. It's such a shitty thing right. to say. Um, and with that fight, we actually uh, developed 
about that, we wrote that fight with a lot of improv, not on the day. Wow. But we improvised. That's pretty brave. We yeah. improvise a fight. Yeah, we improvise. Well, that's real improvisation. I mean, a lot of people think improvisation is just comic improvisation where you're, you know, it's coming up with glib lines. But um, theatrical improvisation is much, is very interesting. You know, it's where you're really finding what the scene is about, you know, and uh, exploring the scene in different ways, going in places where you weren't even sure the scene was, was really supposed to go there. Um, one of my favorite, one of my more recent favorite films that I didn't understand when I was a kid, but I'm a huge fan of Mike Nichols and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was a revelation to me recently because I viewed it as an adult and it's all about fighting, you know, and it's all, I mean, they're, that's more about the destruction that two people are doing to each other. But at the same time, it's exactly the feel that they, that they can't do without. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's, it, you know, I mean, Edward Albee, I think it's the best thing he ever has ever written. I mean, but the Mike Nichols direction is fantastic too, because it's so reserved. And this is a, Mike Nichols was very young at the time. I don't even know how he understood what the whole thing was about. Because it's, a, it's about all those things that you're talking about. You know, the way that you fight, the words that you choose, the, the weapons of mass destruction that you um, willingly, <laughs> you know, let loose. Yeah, to someone you, you know, love. To someone you purportedly love. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so, mm. and so I think, for instance, what we wanted to get at with the fight and what I mean by vicious yeah. is, like, sometimes when, when you're fighting with, um, when you're in that moment where you're like, I'm going to say something and yeah. it's going to fucking sting. At that point, you're not thinking, I really love this person. Mm -hmm. In that moment, you're just angry, right? So so even though you love that person, it's you're not really expressing that in that moment. So that's mm -hmm. what I mean by vicious, is that it's it's the kind of fight that only two people who really love each other can have. And mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not trying to romanticize fighting at all. I, I understand. Know, I know We're not talking about abusive fighting that yeah. results in abuse or that type of thing. We're talking about arguing where there's something that needs to be expressed that the only way it can be expressed is by this outpouring of mutual anger, really. Right. right. And, and, I, and I think what Emily... It's and like, I, I love you and you can't understand why. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. You're not hearing why I trying to love you in a way that you're not accepting. Right <laughs> that's, Accept that's my what, love. Yes, that's what yeah. those fights are about. Um, um, and, so, and so that's what I mean by upending expectations because up until that point... It's sort of a pretty, I think it's 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 sort of pretty rom commy. There's okay. a meet cute, and um and then there's flirting, and even though there's that negotiation happening that you sure. genuinely that you generally don't see in romantic comedies, but then when that fight happens, and it was cool to see it happen at Sundance when people were like, wait, why why are they like actually really having like a pretty yeah pretty rough fight. So that's what I mean. So if you can like have sort of a meet cute and do cute things, then you can like really surprise people. And then something mm -hmm. that's something that happens later in the like movie. In other words, the expect you can't apologize when you have the a fight like that. There has to be a bigger event. That's right. And that's what you're setting up. That's right. right. That's exactly right. Generally in rom-coms, there's a moment where like the guy, usually the guy makes the big grand romantic gesture uh -huh. <laughs> and she takes him back. Yes, exactly. That's hilarious. So then we, we, we play with that little trope too in mm -hmm. the movie at a point that I don't want to give away. But right. we just thought it would be interesting to take some of those just to be because the audience is aware of them, even if they're not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. They have those patterns in their head. Mm -hmm. So if you can sort of like start off on those patterns and zig and zag. Then I think you can uh, 
you could just keep an audience off balance in a in a way that can right. that can actually get them emotional because mm-hmm. that that was what uh, we really it's a comedy and I think it's very I think it's a very I think it's a funny movie and it's mm-hmm. it's a comedy all the way through but we also wanted to evoke an emotional response in people and I mm-hmm. think audiences as you said are so savvy mm-hmm. they see it coming yes they like sniff it that the only way to kind of do it is to sort of um, trick them and go sideways mm-hmm. and, and, and surprise them and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it also can't be a gimmick, you know. And, you know, because the device that you use, of course, is taken from real life, so it's interesting that the real you're both constructing this movie from a technical standpoint, it appears, but you're also drawing from exactly what happened, or at least close to what happened, I assume. And I'm sure the audience is familiar with the, there is a, a a horrible thing that happens, you know, in the yeah. middle of this movie that kind of changes the complete tone of the movie. Yeah. Which is very risky for the type of comedy it was up to that point. Right. And I, yeah, yeah. But we always knew from the very beginning. We knew the yeah. construction of it because mm-hmm. it is based in real life. We knew the construction of it. We knew that was going to be a challenge and we knew that there was going to be a big that was going to be a big shift from mm-hmm. like something that's a kind of a light comedy to something more intense. Mm-hmm. And there's um, there's a joke in there. So there's, so there's like mm-hmm. it's five minutes of pretty sort of harrowing stuff that happens. And then right. we have the first joke and it's like a visual joke. Mm-hmm. So what happens mm-hmm. is we we've broken up. She's in the hospital. I go because I'm the only one who can go. And then there's kind of a harrowing sequence where she has to be put into this coma that's sort of based on my real experience of witnessing it, like they did it in front of me and they really shouldn't have because it truly, mm-hmm. it's, it was very violent. Yeah. And so they've just seen something that they didn't expect. It's almost like a horror movie kind of. Right. And then there's a part where they're like, you have to call her parents and I pull out her phone and I don't know her yes. password. Yes, that's So funny. while she's sleeping, I that's have to like funny. apologize and like unlock it using this comatose woman's yeah. finger. Yeah. And it gets a huge laugh in yes. the theater because I think to people that we're signaling to people like, hey, it's still the same movie. Yes. It, it, this isn't like a different movie now right. and that you're safe. I think when like a tone yeah. changes, people feel a little unsafe. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was our way of being like, it'll be OK. This is not. Yeah, don't I'm, worry. You're still going to laugh. Yeah, you're it's still, OK. Yeah, you're still going to laugh. It's going to yeah. be a little darker, but uh, you're still going to laugh. And what yeah. you said was interesting because we took it from real life. We knew how both Emily and I knew what it felt like to go through that. Mm-hmm. So we could make changes. And when you say Emily, you're talking about your wife? My wife, mm-hmm. uh, who was the one. Who's who, your partner in this? Yeah, she. Mm-hmm. We, we wrote it together, Emily mm-hmm. Gordon and I wrote it together, and she's the one who was in the coma. She was right. in a coma for eight days. Mm. Um, and But we knew what it felt like to go through it. Right. So then we were able to make changes to the events uh, tweak some stuff, move stuff around, um, you know, crank up some stuff, crank down some stuff, because we knew what it should feel like because yeah. we lived through it. So that actually was a good gauge for us. We, was it was it difficult being the dramaturg at that point? You know, of just because you're so close to it, of deciding what should stay in or what should go out was. Well, did you have, uh, was anyone else there while you were writing it? Was Judd around during that time? Yeah, or, Judd was. Like, trem- did you have extra eyes on her saying, yeah, I know you're close to that, but you know what? 
I mean, Judd yeah. was tremendously helpful. Judd Apatow. Mm-hmm. Judd Apatow produced it, and mm-hmm. Barry Mendel, one of the other producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were tremendously helpful in that. And honestly, it helped both me and Emily because it is such a personal story. Right. And you already feel so vulnerable and naked. Mm-hmm. So that actually the changes... Uh, allowed us to get a little more objectivity mm-hmm. onto the thing because it it really is, and I'm feeling that now. Like <laughs> now that people are seeing it, I'm like, oh my god, we've really like shown ourselves in front of. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but but that but the changing actually helped us see it as a as a story and not our story. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I mean, people feel like, well, if it hadn't happened to us, nobody would ever believe it. But when you're doing fiction it can't be too much of that like the audience there has to be a suspension of disbelief that is not too much for the audience you know right there, there's also a bargain where the audience says i don't care if that really happened to you you still have to gently suspend my disbelief you know? right well yeah. um on so like like don't take me too far at once Right, yes. exactly. Right. There's a line. Uh, there is, yeah. Alec Berg, who's the showrunner of Silicon Valley, sure. him and Mike Judge are sort of the, the the heads, and Alec Berg always calls it the, he calls it the Price is Right rule. Oh, of that's comedy, hilarious, yeah. Which he says, there's yeah. a line, and you can make jokes up to that line, but if you have one joke that goes above the line, the reality goes, and people are like, that's bullshit, that wouldn't happen, and the whole thing falls apart. Wow. And in a movie yeah. like ours, I, so, so we thought about that a lot, the, mm-hmm. the, the Price is Right rule, because in a movie like this, it is a comedy, so it has to be funny. Right. But if there's one joke that isn't consistent with the reality of a woman in a very serious life and death situation... yes. The entire thing falls Then you've apart. compromised what you've set up. Yeah, yeah the whole uh, reality is destroyed. Hey guys, White Famous is a new Showtime original comedy series about trying to make it in Hollywood. Starring SNL bet Jay Farrell as Floyd Mooney. A comedian whose career is about to blow up, but he's not sure he's ready for all that. Can he make it without losing his soul? White Famous is executive produced by Academy Award winner Jamie Foxx and the creative Californication Tom Capinos. And the show is based on Jamie Foxx's real life experiences and also stars Michael Rappaport. Jacob Ming Trent, Utkrash, Ambudkar, I hope I didn't mess up his name, and Lonnie Chavez. Uh, the two episode series premieres this Sunday, October 15th at 10 p.m., only on Showtime. It's really, really funny, guys. It's really kind of the story of Jamie Foxx making it in Hollywood. And you can also watch the hilarious season premiere right now for free on YouTube. So just download the Showtime app now to start your free trial. That's White Famous. I thought what was really smart, too, was your casting. I feel casting is so important in movies. And the other, her parents. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, it was fantastic. Ray Romano. Oh, God, now I just Holly lost. Holly Hunter. And Holly Hunter, who is brilliant in everything. She's brilliant But what a pair, too. I mean, here yeah. you have, like, a pure comedian. who Ray has shown his acting chops recently, too, with a lot of different things. And I always thought it was underrated in um, Everybody Loves Raymond. He was so good in that. Consistently good. I think so. Always very funny in it. Yeah. Know? And, and for, always believable, too. That's yeah. it. Yeah. For, for like a multicam show where like, which yes. and I love multicams. I'm not dissing yes. multicam. Oh, I'm I just do saying too, yeah. when someone says a line, you got to hold for the laugh. Right. So it's like the construction of it is artificial, but he always felt yes. so real. He right. was so grounded, yes. yeah. even in that context. Right, right, right. Waiting for people to stop laughing and being in character. Yeah. He was really good. I mean, you know, that was Judd. Judd had that masterstroke. Well, I thought what was good about it, once again, when you talk about 
letting the audience, well, letting them breathe and reminding them that this is a comedy. And now you're able to introduce a little different type of humor in there, which is a little more socially aware. So now it's a little more, there's a little more current currency happening. There's a fantastic joke that you should not give away right now. <laughs> and you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. It's hilarious. The audience like missed the joke after, I think, because they were <laughs> laughing so hard. And I was like applauding. I'm like, that is so fantastic. <laughs> I loved it because it because of where it comes in the movie, that it comes, you know, around this tragedy and everything. Yeah, you know? I mean, you know, a lot of the... Because uh, my character is, uh, in a, is, the, is a comedian in the yes, movie. Yeah, so he has permission to do that, which makes it realistic also. Yeah, it really does. Yes, right. I mean, that's what I do in real life. If right. I'm awkward, I'll make like the most inappropriate joke I <laughs> yes, can. right. And usually it makes the situation worse because I think as a comedian, there's that little thing you have where you're like, I have it when I'm on stage. There's always a little bit of me that's like, you can you can really punish this audience if you want. Right. You have so much power right that's now. So funny. Where you can like you can really ruin their night right now. Mm-hmm. You have that power, and uh, and I and I never do it. There was one time I did it. It was such a fucking weird <laughs> thing, dude. Where you punish the audience. It was such a fucking weird thing. It was the uh-huh. night before I taped my hour-long Comedy Central special. Uh-huh. So I was doing like a set the night before, just a 10-minute set. Yeah, hey, just had... working it out. I don't know why. I really can't explain. That's never happened to me. I was on stage. I was about, I was going to do, and I said a line, and it didn't get a laugh. And it wasn't, it was like a riff. It wasn't. You didn't go Michael Richards on them. No, right? no, no. Oh, okay. I repeated that. I stood there and I just said that line over and over and over. And, you know, the people who were like, like the producer of the, 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 the person who was going to like make the, sh- the, the hour long right. special the next day was like, have we made a huge mistake? But I don't know right. what it was, but I was just like, I was like, I'm going to say this line until every time I, I'm going to say it. And if one person laughs, I'm going to say it again. What were you feeling? I mean, well, it sounds like you were angry or something, or you were defiant. Yeah, I think I think maybe it was. I was in this position where, you know, as a stand-up, you always feel in control, but I'd been getting mm-hmm. all these notes from people and the studio and Comedy Central, like, do this, don't do this, the show has to be like this, you got to wear this. I think it must have been some sort of weird rebellion in that moment where mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, I did this because I want to do it and express myself, not because... I want to make this product that you think is going to be what people want. You know? right. So I think that's what it was. It was really weird. <laughs> it was a str- Sometimes you see a strange part of yourself right. where you're like, I didn't know that was in there. That's where, if it's a movie, that's where the ghost steps out and, says, <laughs> <laughs> and tries to have the conversation in yeah. or whatever. How did, uh, did Judd Apatow become involved in this? Was this a story that you and Emily pitched to him initially? Did he, uh, were you just... Like talking to Jed, did it come out informally? Was it formally pitched? How did that happen? Um, it was all those things, but how it happened was I met Judd at the South by Southwest Festival mm-hmm. in Austin right. in 2012, and we did like a sort of a comedy panel show together, mm-hmm. and we had a great time, and it was we, we sort of hung out that weekend, right? And I was like, oh my god, I'm hanging with Judd Apatow, <laughs> super producer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, and I think he loves comedy so much. So oh, my absolutely. F- it's yeah. crazy. So I was hanging out with like Reggie Watts and sure. Eugene Merman and all these great comedians. And he was like, can you introduce me to Reggie Watts? I'm like, I don't know, Jack. That's funny. And so, and so. We'll see. We'll see how yeah, it goes. We'll yeah. see how you do. You're a little, but, but then, so, so we had a good time. And then that week he, so 
when we went back, he called my manager and was like, hey, just, I want to meet Kamel uh -huh. if he has any ideas. So I went in and he, I think he said he does this on purpose where you meet him like super early. Like he wants to see if you're going to put in the work. So uh -huh. I met, he, he wanted me to meet him in Santa Monica at 7 a.m. And I live in Los Feliz. So, so I got up at like 5.30 and I drove over. And, and then, you know, he's like, so do you have any ideas? And so I, and this was just me. I had some dumb ideas, but mm -hmm. I knew this was the story. Yeah. Because at that point, I was reaching this thing where, like, I had enough distance from the events mm -hmm. that um, I felt like I was ready to actually start sifting through it. Mm -hmm. But also, it hadn't been so long that I couldn't, like, feel it, you know? Right. You were... You and just sorted through the rust of the emotions and you're past that part of it. A little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, it, but it was still like, it was like sort of like electrocuting an open wound a little bit. Mm. Like when I would think of it, well, until then, it would be like, I can't, it was, you would have this like reaction. And mm -hmm. even Emily and I hadn't really talked about the events that much. And she had a different experience of it. Yeah. You know. Which, yeah. I mean, that was Was her emotional experience afterwards similar to yours or just completely different? Uh, right away, it was it was different. So mm -hmm. what's interesting is that we also put in the movie is that once she's up, yeah. we're super happy and yes. she's fucking miserable. Yeah. So we're like opposites. Like that's another we, good twist on that. Yeah. Right. Because you think she's up and everyone's happy and she's like, "What do you mean? I was in a coma. My body betrayed me. Mm -hmm. I almost fucking died. This makes no sense. I'm in pain. I have yeah. no. I have no. I'm not wearing underwear. People come in and just stick needles in me all day. So she's miserable. Mm-hmm. And so we 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 had such a fundamentally different experience of this, and we didn't we didn't even really talk about it until we started writing the movie, and then it was like, so what was it like for you? And she's like, I fucking I fucking hated it. Interesting. And yeah. we were we were like thrilled. Me and her family are like, hallelujah. Yeah. So that's in the movie, um, and what it, it was weird. Like so so up until we started working on the movie, we hadn't really talked about. Mm. It was just like this big crazy thing that happened. It was the crazy thing that happened that's in the past and we don't discuss. It's it. like World War II veterans. They rarely talked about their experiences. Oh, really? Yeah. There's, there's just when so many of them, when you see them uh, being honored or that type of thing. And I think it wasn't until years later where some of them started opening up. But it, um, there was such a, I think there was so many misperceptions about the experiences of World War II because it was so. I don't know if glamorize is the right word. Yeah. But yeah. in some ways it was with Hollywood yeah. and the fight against the Nazis, you know, G.I. Yeah. Joe is on the march, you know, that yeah. type of thing. But war is hell. And the experiences, I mean, those are young boys going to war and many of them saw horrible things that they just didn't want to talk about, you know. Yeah. And that war <clears throat> is seen as such a clear cut good versus evil kind of war, you know. That's how, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So but was, when you're in the battlefield, Lines aren't so clear, you know. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. sure it's very complicated and yeah. messy. Um, so, so we hadn't really talked about it, uh, and then it was, and you know, we'd expended. I had expended so much energy in not thinking about it. So then I told Judd this idea. He was like, "All right, go. I like that. Go and prepare a formal pitch, and then come back and pitch it to me." Mm -hmm. And that's when we like. I like. I still had all the name tags from when I used to visit wow. her. I, I really? kept them. 
So I kind You're of such went, a romantic. You are a romantic. It's you know, it, <laughs> I knew. I think part of it. I mm-hmm. really am a romantic. Mm-hmm. I really hold on to like sure. totems. You know, that's like a, that's funny. I really do. Like we were just moving, and. Emily was like, I'm going to throw out this video game. It was Halo 2. And I was like, that was the first video game we played together. You can't get rid of babe. that. babe. Yeah. Are you serious? Don't you um, and so I, I, I took out all those name tags. And that was, it was literally like, there's a there was like a box of hospital stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so opened that and sort of looked through it. And you touch that stuff. And, and, you know, still now, sometimes when I smell tape, it like takes me back to those mm. times so so then it was like all right i guess we should really i really would sit and try and think of specific events and then talk to emily and she would tell me how it was going because because the thinking you know i just assumed like oh we went through this thing together we really didn't Mm-mm. very different experiences right but but what helped was we were able to put both the perspectives into the movie and have yeah. conflict come from that yeah um so I would write a first draft, and she would be like, this is not how it happened. I'm like, all right, well, rewrite, do your version. Mm-hmm. You're able to do both. And so it actually really, really helped keep the script, like, messy. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, like, unpolished and complicated. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and so, yeah, so, so then we wrote the script for three years, Emily and I. We really? Wrote, yeah, we would. Wow. Because we knew Judd, this is what. Why did it take so long? Well, or was we, that just part of his process? His process is like that. Mm-hmm. But, but it's also because I was doing Silicon Valley. So, you know, you're not like working right. on it all the time. But the brother two, was busy. Brother had a job. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, two, the two big challenges were going to be, one, the structure of it is so unconventional. It's mm-hmm. one of the leads of the movie is missing for all of Act 2 pretty much. Right. We knew that was going to be a challenge. Challenge to sell, challenge to market, challenge in many ways for people going, wait, I'm, I know you're John Apatow, but you want to do this? Or? Yeah, and challenge mm-hmm. to make, like challenge to you fall in love with this woman and then she's gone. Mm-hmm. She's gone. But here's the trick you can use. Uh, if you have the lead of your movie going away for a while, bring in Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It was so brilliant. Yeah, you know? they'll, they'll, they'll take care of it. Yeah. Uh, the other challenge is always going to be, you know, like how do you make it funny? Like going through it, nothing about it felt funny. Mm-hmm. Like it just was nothing about it was funny. But I knew like at its most basic, the idea of um, – People going through an event that they are not equipped to handle mm-hmm. is funny. That that was a funny construction. Right. And so the challenge was going to be like, how do we, how, so, so like vaguely it can be funny. And then you try and find the specific things about it that can be funny while not losing the reality of, yeah. while not losing the stakes of a woman in a coma. It's funny. I felt this movie at its core was really about intimacy. Right was, was what it was actually about. When yeah. you strip away everything, I mean, every scene, and I always think when, whenever you find out what something is about, it's in the DNA of every scene. You can pick out a scene and it's about intimacy or whatever your, sh- your movie is about, you know. And um, but that's what came to my mind as I'm watching it. It's is well, one person, especially uh, Emily, trying to teach you intimacy. Yeah, <laughs> you, uh, your family has their way of dealing with intimacy. Yeah. You know, her parents have no abs, no way of dealing with intimacy in their own way. Right. And through these traumatic events, intimacy is, is gained, you know, 
And intimacy is also gained with the audience along the way, too, you know, which is kind of interesting. I, I found it very powerful. Does, does that resonate at all? Oh, know? I always start of the yeah. movie at its most basic about people trying to connect and the things that get in the way. Yeah. So so you hit the nail on the head with me and Emily. Yeah. There's that where she wants to connect, but I, I can't because of um, the p- pressure from my parents. I can't connect with my parents because sure. of who I want to be. Um, and then we we explicitly, you know, the best is when you can have a comedy where the jokes come from yeah. the, the the theme, right? Yes. So if you see like that the the joke that you're talking about, um, it's a it's a it's a a, a break in communication. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the movie, the the first few, the middle of the movie where I'm sort of hanging out with Emily's parents, yeah. over and over, what's happening is. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to connect with me. Right. I make a joke; it doesn't work. Yes, or or they make a joke and I don't get it. It's over right. and over, just like crossed signals. We're, we're trying to connect and find right. the intimacy and are are not finding it. Yes, and then and then we do find. But then that. you do find it. Yeah. In fact, I think a brilliant execution of it is in the beginning of the movie because you're using just modern conventions of dating. And uh, <laughs> it's really funny. There's an Uber joke in there that I won't give away that's hilarious. But it's such a funny take on, I mean, here you are committing the most, arguably the most intimate of acts in the most unintimate of ways. That's right. And with the feeling that we shouldn't do this again, we're done, right. always saying that. And just avoiding any hint of intimacy at all costs. And yet, that's the hole that you just can't stop from falling in. I yeah. realized yeah. exactly. That's exactly right. Because yeah. that was our experience in actual dating. Was both yeah. of us like, when we you can't do alive. this. Yeah. We can't do this. This <laughs> yeah. is it. Did you guys actually say that to each other? Yeah, yeah. we were. Were you I, saying it because of the reasons that are in the movie for cultural reasons? Yeah, I was cultural. You, and you be- thought that in the beginning it was in there. You think? With me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For you I personally. Think, I think I was getting to the point where it seemed like with my parents, it was kind of reaching a breaking point because mm-hmm. I'd been putting it off for a while. And I was, it was really I was getting like the full court press on that at right. that point. It was like getting more and more intense. So I wasn't actively going, my parents want me to do this. so I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I'll do this. I had dated girls before, obviously. But um, I think I... The the fact that I liked her so much mm-hmm. was what was scary. Again, this wasn't me actively thinking these things. I think unconsciously I was like, oh, she's trouble. Mm-hmm. Can't do this. And then from her perspective, she had just come out of a marriage. She was married yeah. right before it mm-hmm. uh, in real life and in the movie too uh she just came out of a marriage and she had short, sort of decided like i need i'm in a new city she just moved to chicago she was like mm-hmm. i'm in a new city i'm out of a marriage i gotta be alone and figure out who i am right. i want to be on my own last thing i want is to get in a relationship right exactly now. right i remember i would like we would be like all right we're never gonna hang out again it's totally fine nothing and then i'd be like why don't you come over and watch a movie Mm-hmm. I've put dirty laundry on the bed, so we won't go there. There's no danger. Mm-hmm. We'll just watch a movie, and then, of course, we end up making out on top of the dirty laundry. So, um, yeah, we just couldn't, uh, we kind of couldn't stay apart, and that's how it was. And I think there's another thing that we put in that was uh, kind of cool 
was after we have sex the first night, mm -hmm. she puts a blanket over herself to put the clothes on. Uh -huh. Right, it, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You just had sex. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, because Emily was right. always like, it's always weird in movies where like they have sex and then the girl just walks naked to the bathroom. Like, yeah. But the context is completely different. Right. Yeah. And so, so, so there were a bunch... Here's the thing I realized. That, that lost of uh, the naked ambition or the, you yeah. know what I mean? The, uh, when you're, when you're having sex at all that, everything, you're just blind from, right. from how you actually exist in the world normally. <laughs> oh my God. You become another creature almost. That's yeah. exactly right. You become right. a creature. Yes. So much of true. our lives is trying to not be creatures. Yeah. When you're having sex, you're a creature. I think Shakespeare had it. Uh, I don't know if it was the two-backed creature or something like that. I can't remember. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. It something, right. It was something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah the two-backed yeah, creature. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But he, but, yeah, but seeing the whole act of sex as one particular creature, not even two people, but if you become one creature almost. Yeah, it, it sounds yeah. gross. In, yeah, implicit in this horrible disgusting thing right? yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah. otherwise why are you so shamed afterwards you know? i know yeah. i know yeah. exactly of course exactly. of course that's my catholicism speaking of. oh and my my being raised very religious muslim speaking now have you had any cultural response from this movie from uh from either friends or family or that type of thing how, how have people responded to it that are that are muslim or that may have shared that point of view about arranged marriage and and keeping it in the culture, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it's been interesting. It's mm -hmm. um, we just got the the news the 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 biggest oldest English newspaper in Pakistan is called Dawn, like the day daybreak dawn. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, like you know, everyone in my family reads it. They would like read it, talk about the articles in their Dawn. Everybody knows Dawn. They just <laughs> reviewed it two days ago. Really. Right. And you got reviewed and done. Yeah. There we go. It's like wow. our New York Times. Look at you, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Snazzy Pants. Yeah. But they gave it a really mm -hmm. good review. And one of the things they said was that they doesn't portray the other culture as being like out of touch or anything. And mm -hmm. they said that it that they sort of did a good job of um, making every point of view seem valid. Yes. So that was exciting. However. And there was one, the last girl I thought you talked to. Yeah. I thought that was a really good scene. Yeah, and again, that's a scene that... You know what I'm talking about. It's Because she was keeping it real. Yeah. And it almost seemed like, well, is he going to wind up there? You know, I you're know. thinking that. I thought it was, that was very good. Yeah. Thank you. Well, yes. that was a scene that is... Uh, it's not a joke, in other words. It's yes. not a joke. Right. And structure-wise, it is an inessential scene. You could take that scene out. You could. And nobody would be like, I thought there it was should great. have been a scene with nobody would have thought that. And when we, when we tested the movie, um, you know, you, 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 you give out forms and all that. And then you mm. have a little group afterwards. And that was the scene that people would be like, why is that scene in the movie? It doesn't need to be in the movie. But there would be always one person in the in the group who'd be like, you can't cut that scene. That's the I agree with that person. Yeah. And, and, and so did. Well, because those that group is going to be a traditionally silenced group, you know, that doesn't have a voice. Right. That is put off to the side. And that one girl in there was able to have a voice. Right. You know, and right. it was nice. It was, you know, it did what it was, I, I felt what it, what it was there to do, if in fact it was there to do that. It was in fact. Yeah. It okay. was there to do that. It was basically you, that my character has to realize sort of the collateral damage that he's been causing by mm -hmm. uh, not being intentional in his in his life, you know? And here you are, a brown romantic lead. Like I said, you're a disruptor. People on your train, all right, you're going to be with the white girl? Okay, 
Go home. Good luck. Well, <laughs> well, exactly. Well, go back to your homies. Good luck, man. Well, <laughs> see I, what they have to say about that. I've gotten, I've gotten that react. I've gotten the reaction where people are upset yeah. at me right. personally for having married a white girl. Like right. that's that's like. Oh, oh, you get successful, you're gonna marry a white girl. Right? Yeah. But do you think you're black? No. Yeah. Thank you very well, much, I mean, folks. Thank you well, very much. Have have you? Have you <laughs> I mean. Um, is that and because I, I mentioned that too, I was like surprised by that reaction. Yeah, I, I did not anticipate my people being upset at me, married, to, and that, I guess I guess that was me being naive. Yes, but I mentioned it to someone who was interviewing me. She's black and she has a white husband, and <laughs> right. she was like, "I'm sure that was on her radar immediately." <laughs> yeah, she was like, she was like, "Oh, we dealt with that." And yeah. um, she named some movie in the '90s that's about a black woman and a white man. Uh, I remember Chris Turner. Wait, black woman and white man. Uh, okay, anyhow, she she, she right. was like, yeah, we've dealt with that. So welcome. Right, right, right. This is what progress looks yes. like. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, right. And there was Mandingo with the in the seventies and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I really love this film. I'm really, uh, you know, I'm rooting for it. I love um, uh, things like this when you're doing something different. Um, do what do do you see yourself writing more movies, you and Emily? Are you going to do more of that? Are you guys going to be directing things? Are there more stories that you want to tell? Um, are you going to stay in the film world? I I would love to. I would mm-hmm. love to write again with Emily because mm-hmm. I told Emily this. I was like, you know, you can write female characters mm-hmm. who are real and funny and you don't ignore that they're female. Mm-hmm. I'm like that's like a superpower in this biz. Like it's yeah. you, you could do something that isn't really. I was like, I think big movies should hire you just to fix their females because yeah. I, I think a lot of the, I think Elaine May did a lot of script doctoring like that, that right? back in the yeah. day. Yeah, I think mm. I think a lot of like the female characters that we've seen that have but broken the mold are ones who were written as male and then changed to female. Yeah, like Ripley and Alien, sure. which I is a movie I love, but it was written to be a man, mm. and so her. Um, I would love I would love to write more with them. We're st- we're just starting to hopefully come out of the haze of making the movie. It's so mm-hmm. much work. Yeah, it is. It's, <laughs> it's so much more work than you than I thought. Yeah, which was you know so it was writing it for three years, but then that la- after three years of writing that last year up to shooting mm-hmm. uh, was really really intense rewriting and casting. And finding locations and all that. And, you know, Michael Showalter is the one who directed it. Mm-hmm. But we were still very involved in the casting and, you know, trying to get financing and all that. Sure. And then and then the shooting and then the editing. The editing took like four or five months. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And then you go to Sundance and then we it, it got distribution, which is great. But then you go into like the PR. It's so much. It's It's a lot. It's a lot. And so I think... Middle of July, we're sort of done with that, and I want to take like a couple weeks off, and then I want to think about the next thing because it was such a satisfying experience. I loved it and fun too. Yeah, it's work, but it was like so fun, and we really got to work with. I mean, you you know, Ray Romano, Holly Hunter, true legends. Yeah, but it really felt like making this movie that everybody like poured a piece of themselves into it. Are you with them on some of the press junkets? I see them all the time. Oh, that's fantastic. I was with that's Ho- so much fun. I was with Holly yeah. Ray and Zoe, who plays Emily, last yeah. night. And we're going to New York on Saturday, and we're going to spend a whole week there. Great. Um, 
I did a tour with Ray. Me, Ray. Stand-up. You guys are doing like a stand-up thing, right? Yeah, yeah. We did a stand-up tour. It's got to be a fun show. Well, you know, so Ray fun. did that with Raymond. He and um, like Phil Rosenthal would take uh, Ray and the writers like on the road, and they would do an evening with Everybody Loves Raymond. Really? Yeah. Phil Rosenthal's a great guy, too. Oh, Phil's great. He's yeah. the best, yeah. He showed this movie at one of his movie nights. In his oh, house. that's right, his movie nights. Phil Rosenthal has a movie night every week. He's been doing that like for 25 years. Yeah. yeah. He shows yeah. new movies, and then he gets pizza from Mozart. From Mozart, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. Um, so, but, but that's the thing is, like, I want to obviously do keep going. I would love Good. to direct at some point, but Great. right now I'm still trying to figure out the acting of it. Well, and do us a favor. Keep being a leading man. <laughs> I mean, that's not up to me. I would <laughs> yeah, love I it. I think it's fantastic. I think we need to see more of that. Um, and I, I really do love this... Uh, this funny and sensitive and provocative and, um, you know, just intimate yet big general storytelling. Bravo, my friend. Oh, thank you. That means so much to me. Thank Everybody, you. please go see The Big Sick. Please, you will not be disappointed. You will be very happy. And, uh, you know, eat a lot of candy. And then once the movie is over, you can go into your coma for about eight days. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> All right, be well, my friend. Thanks, Camille. Thank you for having me. 